Well, one little praise that uh, um, wasn't mentioned this morning, but which happened just a couple days ago. Um, little Eli Holland was born to uh, Tom and Jessica Holland uh, at uh, WCA. I had the privilege of going and um, holding him. It's awesome. Um, so, yeah. You can go to my Facebook page and see there's a pretty good picture there. So, you're welcome to do that. Well, we are privileged to... Uh, open up the word of God this morning and to uh, listen to what he has to say to us and allow him to uh, penetrate his word into our lives. And so we're going to open up to John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Let's listen closely because this is God's word to us this morning. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Friends, this is God's word for us today. Thank you, God, for your holy and special word, your text, which written so long ago still speaks volumes to us. It just jumps off the page sometimes at us. We read phrases and go, oh, wow, that is so true. God, your your wisdom is far beyond ours. You have shared your love with us. And you share this good news, and we pray that we will receive it well, that we will know who the real Jesus is, not the one that's been devised in some other way in our minds, but the real one. And may that change everything for us. We ask it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we've been looking at um, who is the real Jesus and there are so many uh, images of Jesus out there, the, the shepherd, the healer, 
the revolutionary, the peacemaker, things like that. Your friend, your brother, the Lord. There are also many theories that people have come up with over the years. Uh, he was a delusional leader. Some people think of that. Just this guy who was going around getting people to follow him like a Jim Jones kind of crazy guy. Or a religious guru, a wise teacher who dispenses knowledge out there. A charlatan, a person who's trying to trick people. Or maybe the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord of all. Some of, some of us have recognized that to be the truth. But how do we get to know who this real Jesus is? How do we let that sink in? And what would happen if we let the real Jesus show up in our own lives? Just think about that. What would happen to us if we let the real Jesus just penetrate past all our defenses and show up in our, in our lives and begin to act? Well, last several weeks we looked at Jesus' life and ministry. We focused on his mission, which was the uh, uh, proclamation of the coming of the, the kingdom of God. We talked about his plan, which was if you're going to go big, if you're going to go worldwide, if you're going to go for long term in history, then you have to go really deep with just a few people until those people are totally 100% in. And then they begin to disseminate that, and that's much more powerful than the means of the world. And we've seen his power. Last week, Pastor Kristen talked about how uh, it was real, and it was life-changing. And, uh, and yet, it was uh, not always accepted, even though it was blatantly real right in front of people's faces. Well, today we're going to look at the conflict that he experienced. Why was Jesus in conflict with people? Why would that happen? I mean, a lot of people loved Jesus. They followed him. They sought him out. They even worshipped him. But some people hated Jesus. And we see that in the passage here today. We see people who, it says, from that point on, they began to plot to kill him. Now, just think about that. I mean, I'm hoping this has never happened in your life. That at some point, you just finally decide that person has to just be killed. I mean, that's serious. That is extreme. But that's exactly what they decide. They decide, and Caiaphas goes ahead and prophesies here. He says, it's better that one man should die to save the whole nation. And he has no idea that he's talking about the, the reality that Jesus is going to die to save the world. Out of his mouth come these words. He doesn't even fully understand them. Why would people hate Jesus? Why would anyone dislike someone who hands out free food? Who casts out demons from possessed people? Who heals sick people? Who welcomes desperate people? Who goes to the marginalized people, the ones that everybody else is looking down on, and says, you're worth something. You're a human being made in the image of God. You are precious and I love you, who would touch lepers, who would even raise people who had died from the dead, raise them back to life. Why would anybody have a problem with any of that? Well, our text in John 11 happens immediately after a huge event. You notice how it started out. Many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. And uh, what what did Jesus do? Well, right in front of that text, right before, 
Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus has gone to a tomb where a guy has been dead for four days. He's really dead. He's wrapped up in cloths. He's laid in this tomb. There's a concern for the people who are opening the, the, uh, the pulling the stone away from the front of the tomb, saying, this is going to be bad, Jesus. This is going to smell bad. We're in the Middle East here, Jesus. Come on. It gets hot here. Things start to rot. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And do you realize that that happened only two miles away from Jerusalem? Only two, Bethany's only two miles away from Jerusalem. When you stand and look over the old city, the city of David in Jerusalem, you can look immediately to the right to the Mount of Olives where Jesus came down on, uh, on Palm Sunday. And right to the right of that, just down the slope of the hill, you can see the little village of Bethany. It's right there. And so right on the doorstep of Jerusalem where all the power, all the religious power was, Jesus has done this undeniable act. I mean, people have gone to mourn with Mary, the Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, and they have seen Lazarus come back to life. And when that happens, I mean, people don't just go like, oh, that's cool. Hey, how's your bracket? That's not people's reaction to someone coming back to life. And so the word just spreads and they're just all over the place. And the Pharisees and the chief priests are very, very nervous about this. It says that they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was sort of the ultimate ruling body of the Jewish people. It was kind of like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It consisted of 71 elders who were scribes that were, they were kind of like religious scholars, Pharisees, Sadducees, and um, chief priests and the high priest. No one knew the law more, uh, kept the law more strictly. No one knew the Hebrew scriptures any better than these guys. If anybody should have been able to judge rightly about any spiritual situation that had gone on, it should have been these guys. But it's evident from the text that that is not where they were headed. Now, what's really neat is that we know some of them either were at that time or became followers of Jesus. We can point out Nicodemus, for instance, because we find out what happened in the Sanhedrin, both at this time and also at the trial of Jesus. So somebody had to be there to note that. And so that would be at least Nicodemus. So these religious leaders are exasperated. They They've kind of had enough of this guy. This traveling preacher, somebody's been going around doing all this stuff, and people have been, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Hear about Jesus? And these guys are kind of sick of that. But now, but now he's taken it to an entirely new level. Right outside the seat of their power, this huge, miraculous event has happened, and their response is amazing. What are we accomplishing? They say. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Isn't it interesting that they admit that Jesus is doing all these miraculous things? It's really fascinating. What are we accomplishing? This guy's doing all these miracles. Yes! He is doing all those miracles. Why would you be hardened to that? 
Why would you not just say, wow, praise the Lord, somebody who is dead is alive again. These sick people are healed. What is wrong with what Jesus is doing? They still don't want to believe who he says he is. And just like Pastor Christian preached to us last week, even signs and wonders blatantly displayed before people's faces, if they do not want to hear it, they will not believe it. We can't just say, boy, Jesus, why don't you just show up in the sky, giant head in the sky, I am Jesus, believe in me, right? Well, everybody, even in that case, people will be looking around, boy, the satellite network they have is amazing these days. They've just pulled off the incredible things. Who were these Sanhedrin guys again? Well, they were the chief priests. That, that means they were Levites. They were the people in control of the temple worship, which was the most important ceremonial function uh, of their culture and of their religion. They were the Sadducees. These are guys who tended to be wealthy, upper class. They didn't relate as well to the common man. Uh, they had a lot of power, and they included, the chief priest and the high priest was included as part of the Sadducees. They held most of the seats in the Sanhedrin. They had the majority. And they only took the first five books of the Bible to be from God. The rest was um, good spiritual literature, but not necessarily from God. And interestingly enough, even though they were the ones whose power was based in religious practice, they were they, the, the way they acted showed that they were far more interested in the politics and the political power of what was going on than the religious power. It's interesting as well that when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, the Sadducees just ceased to exist. Once that happened, they were gone. The temple was gone. Their power was gone. Political power was gone. They were gone. They just ceased to exist. The other main group was the Pharisees. These were middle-class men, often associated with uh, the business class. They were far more respected by the common people because they were out hanging out with the common people. And they were very religious. They were very, very observant of all their traditions. And people saw that. And so they emulated that. Wow, that guy is really serious. He's very religious. They were extremely focused on meticulously keeping the law. And they didn't want to break the law, so they built up a whole hedge of traditions around the law. If you stayed sort of outside of this hedge, then you, you weren't going to break the law that's inside the hedge. And so they wouldn't just say, you know, uh, um, uh, don't, don't do something. They would say, uh, step back about two steps and don't, don't do anything that would even lead towards that. And then you'll be guaranteed to not break the law in any way. These traditions, however, became so important to them that they treated them almost as if the law, it was the law itself. So when Jesus' disciples uh, eat grain uh, and um, they don't wash their hands first, the Pharisees are like, what? They didn't wash their hands, which had nothing to do with cleanliness issues. It had to do with ceremonial washing. They didn't do the ceremonial washing. And that was one of those hedge rules around uh, a deeper law there. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Everyone will believe in him. You know, that must have been, frankly, kind of personally annoying to the religious leaders. I mean, they had all this education and all this ceremony and a whole lifetime spent 
kind of building this power. And then this guy just comes out of nowhere. He comes out of Nazareth, which everybody's saying, Nazareth? Like, really? He comes out of Nazareth, and he has all this power, and he speaks so authoritatively. It just must have been annoying. But that was not the scariest part to them. Far more scary to them was what it could potentially lead to if all these people believed in Jesus and started following Jesus. And that's what this next line is. And then the Romans will come and take away our temple and our nation. That is the core. The fear that because of Jesus' ministry, despite all the good things he was doing, if people started to follow him, the Romans would take note and they would come and take away, they describe here, our temple and our nation. The, the New International Version says temple. It's really interesting. In the Greek, it actually is the word place. And there are some versions like the New American Standard that says they will come and take away our place and nation. Translators have sought to do the work for you by saying that place could probably be the temple. And it's, you know, it's interesting. Back then, they referred to the temple as the place. Like they would say, are you going to the place? And people were like, yeah. And they knew what we were talking about. It's kind of like if I say to you, are you going to the city? You're not thinking Buffalo, are you? We're thinking New York. Now, I love Buffalo, but when we say the city, when you're anywhere in the Northeast, you say the city, we mean New York. I mean, I've said that sometimes to people like, wow, I never really thought about that, but what other city is like New York? I have a friend um, who, uh, he's English, and um, somebody said once again, well, that was, that was in the Times, like in the Times newspaper, and I said, which one? Because I'm thinking New York Times, you know, Los Angeles Times. London Times, he's like, which one? The London Times. Is there any other Times? I mean, that was just his attitude. It was like, so, so, so they considered the temple, which was the, the sort of the core of their religious practice, it was the place. And they're worried the Romans might take away this physical place, this access to the temple itself, this place of their core religious practices. Indeed, the Antonio Fortress was uh, built right on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. It's where Pilate's troops were located. It's where every time there was a rebellion, and there were a lot of rebellions, every time it happened, Pilate and his troops would like hole up in the Antonio Fortress, and then they'd go out from there and kind of take over things. So they could quickly take over the Temple Mount and control it if they wanted. The Romans will come, away, come and take away our place, our temple. But you know, place could also mean our position, our authority. We use place like that. If you, somebody does something, you say, hey, that's not your place. That's not your role. Everyone should know his or her place. Sometimes people have said that. And the place of the chief priests and the Pharisees was that of power and honor and control and authority. Authority, So Jesus could subvert their power and change their lives by kicking them out of power. And they're worried about their worldly place as well as their physical place of the temple. The Romans might come and take away our place and our nation. The nation here refers to their ability to just be a nation living here in the land. They were conquered peoples. And um, 
when the Romans came and conquered people, they tended to move them around. This was an ancient tradition. They would cart them off and uh, send them someplace else and bring in new people to that area. And, uh, and they would try to kind of um, uh, challenge people's culture and religion that way. They hadn't done that to the Jews. Some people they didn't do this to. They allowed a lot of religious freedom but it was kind of like as long as you went along with the rules. And one of the rules was you have to do sacrifices to the Roman gods at least once a year. And they had pushed back. The Jews had pushed back on this. In fact, the Jews had pushed back on it so much. The Romans had killed and tortured people. And they still said, we're not going to do it. That they finally just said, you know what? We're going to make an exception for these Jews. Everybody else has to worship the Roman gods once a year. But the Jews, they don't have to because, frankly... They're so annoying, we're just going to let them off the hook. And so they actually had this exemption from Rome, and this would be one of the things that the Romans could take away from them. They could challenge their national existence. They could move them out of the area if they wanted. The little bit of self-rule that they still had left, which primarily was religious in nature, could still even more be taken away. They controlled the people by use of the uh, Mosaic law, the, the Old Testament. And that could be removed from these leaders. So these guys were nervous. They were nervous about Jesus. But they weren't just sort of power-hungry rulers. There was actually a spiritual dimension going on here as well. The Pharisees especially were very concerned about Jesus because of religious reasons. Here's what they knew. They were well aware that in the Old Testament... The history of the Israelite people was this. God saying, I'm making a covenant with you. As long as you keep it, as long as you obey me, as long as you don't worship idols, as long as you follow me, then I'll be with you and I'll take care of you. And when you do do stuff wrong, I will, as sort of a loving parent, I'll discipline you. I'll punish you until you do it right. And so the Israelite people had, guess what, not done Things right. They got really involved in worshiping idols. They also completely began to ignore observing the Sabbath. And after a long time, we're talking hundreds of years, God finally allowed the uh, Assyrians and also the Babylonians to come in and just remove them. And in fact, in the final removal in 587 BC, the Babylonians took the remaining Jews away to Babylon and they were there for 70 years. They were displaced. They were in exile. And they thought they were never coming home. Except for a few lone prophets out there that said, yep, there will be a remnant that comes home. That remnant did come home. And when they came home, they were serious. From that point on, there was never idol worship recorded in Israelite history from that point on. They learned their lesson. Plus, they took the Sabbath really, really seriously. So they, these Pharisees were adamant. There can be nothing that goes down in this land that in some way sounds like God isn't getting all the glory or that human beings are getting the glory or that there's some kind of idolatry or that the, the um, Sabbath isn't being um, uh, adhered to, recognized, practiced. And they were going to keep the law no matter what the cost because they didn't want God to be angry at them. And so... They also knew that any sign of rebellion, like someone walking around saying, the kingdom of God is here, 
And people saying the kingdom, does that mean there's a king? Does that mean there's another ruling group here besides the Romans? They knew that if the Romans heard that, that they would be like, whoa, let's pay attention to that. And that that could be one of these things that they respond to with swords. And so here's this man, Jesus, who shows up and he doesn't keep the tight rules around the Sabbath that the Pharisees liked which were all sorts of things like you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they had defined that into very specific things. Like you can't lift more than a certain number of pounds and you can't walk further than a certain distance and that kind of thing. And Jesus didn't do that stuff. Now, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath, but he was not keeping their hedge of rules. Jesus didn't keep those rules around the Sabbath. And he also said strange things like he was the son of God. That he, was, he and the Father were the same. That he would judge the world. All sorts of things that if people began to follow him and idolize him, they might make him, in the Pharisees' minds, into an idol. I mean, he's saying, I and the Father are one. He's saying radical things. He's saying, essentially, I'm God. And they are freaked out by this. They're like, if God finds out, we're going to be in really big trouble. So we have to stop this guy. And we have to stop him talking about a kingdom, which sounds dangerous, and the Romans won't like that. And so, and so that's their motivation. They have to, it's not so much that they didn't care about people getting healed, although, frankly, from some of the stories there, we see they didn't really care that much. But they're worried about losing their power and their position. Well, friends, it's 2,000 years later, and you might be thinking, I'm sitting in church in Bemis Point, USA, not Israel, not Jerusalem. I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, Jesus ticked off some religious leaders 2,000 years ago. So what? I mean, who why would that matter? Why would this conflict that he had with them matter? Well, I just want to say that this conflict blows away the myth that is super popular in our culture. That Jesus was just a nice, safe guy who loved children, was meek and mild, wouldn't want to hurt anybody, wouldn't want to offend anybody, would say we should love everyone, we shouldn't judge anyone. Those things are super popular in our culture, if you're talking about who is Jesus. But if he was just that, I don't think he would have been as uh, hated as he was. I think that Jesus is far more dangerous to our place and nation than we tend to feel comfortable with. He's been completely sanitized by people's pop culture understanding of him. We don't like it when Jesus threatens us in any way. And we like it when the church is sanitized too. Jesus' movement, the church, shouldn't be challenging. It shouldn't be a place where there is conflict or struggle. And the minute Jesus or his movement, the church, dares to confront us or push us, or discipline us, or threaten our cherished dreams that Jesus and the church ought to be nice people and a nice place for nice people to do nice things and where people shouldn't be uncomfortable 
and where people shouldn't be challenged. The moment we sense that, we begin to, pu- we begin to push back. You know what? There's other churches. I could go to those other churches. They wouldn't push me this much. But friends, Jesus, he's right in our face. He loves us incredibly, incredibly much. When you interact with Jesus, you sense how much he loves you. But you also sense that his his price is very high. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to receive the wholeness I have to offer, you need to give your whole self over to me. You know, if somebody signed up for the army and after a week of boot camp, they came and said, these people aren't very nice. I mean, they yell at me and make me do extra push-ups. And, you know, we, we would say, duh, the army isn't interested in being nice. The army has a greater mission of security and, 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 and control and protection and things like that. That's what the army is about. So don't expect it to be easy all the time. Friends, the church is an army. We are the army of God. And if you show up at church and you say, wait a minute, somebody pushed back on something that was sacred to me, something that I really, you know, like, like not being confronted about my sin, which I happen to like. And people had the gall, the audacity to say that God would say, that, that, that really isn't what's God's best for you. And the church would have the guts to say that kind of thing. Friends, that is, it's kind of like the army, except we're nicer. We really are. But our mission is even more important. Even more important because it's eternal in nature. Friends, Jesus, he's going to push us. And, And we could just ask ourselves, where are we afraid of letting the real Jesus into our lives because we're afraid that he's going to take something away from us? What are, you, what are you scared that if you turn yourself totally over to Jesus that you're going to have to give up? Because, friends, we all have to give up in order to receive what Christ offers to us. But it's so worth it. And what we receive on the other side is life abundant, so much greater than what we're holding on to. See, it's like we're trying to hold on to water. We're trying to grab that water. I'm going to keep it. And if you do that, it's going to go right through your hands. But if you're willing to receive it, it, it can be there for you. God offers us abundant life through Jesus Christ, but he is radical in saying, hey, if you... If you don't go along with what I have to say, you're just going to miss it. Not because I'm mean and I'm going to pound you. You're just going to miss what I have to give. You're going to be grabbing and the water's not going to be there instead of receiving what I have to give. What is it that we are scared we'll have to give up? How do we push back on Jesus? How do we keep him at arm's length? How do we marginalize him in our lives? Do any of you treat Jesus like the emergency kit in the back of your car. You know, really glad he's there for emergencies. But most of the time you don't think about it. That's so tempting for all of us. 
I want to challenge you that Jesus loves you so much that he comes right to where you are and he can heal you and he can even raise you from the dead. But he won't do it unless you are willing to accept it. Are you tempted to hold on to your place and nation? To push back? I know I am. But let's not do it, okay? Let's be like the people who received from Jesus and didn't push back. Because if you push back long enough, you'll just want him dead and out of your life. And that's a terrible place to be. Let's pray. Lord, you were in conflict because you pushed on... You pushed on the places of power and of fear, fear of loss of security on those religious leaders. But God, at the same time, Lord Jesus, you you offered to everyone, including them, whole life, abundant life. And Lord, the poor people who sort of didn't have much to lose and who were just sick and needed healing and just overwhelmed and needed love, Lord, they, they found it easier to accept you. It was the ones with more power and more riches who struggled. God, today we admit that we're people with a lot of power and a lot of riches, a lot of ways to avoid you, to push you aside, maybe to keep you in the trunk, but to not necessarily let you be Lord. Please have mercy on us, God. We don't want to be that. We don't want to push you away until we just want you dead. Lord Jesus, help us to surrender to you right now, this day. Giving our whole selves to you. We don't even know what that means in fullness, but Lord, help us to take the next faithful step and just give ourselves to you and say, Lord, I I want that. Teach me that. And then when the church comes, Lord, and says, hey, we can help you with that. We can help you read your Bible. We can help you connect with Christ. We can help you be in fellowship. We can help you share your testimony then, Lord, when that happens, may we not push back and say, oh, I don't have time for that. But instead, may we say, ah, that's what I want. Because I want you, Lord Jesus. God, this is our prayer today. And we love you. And we're learning to love you more each day. And now we pray it in your powerful name. Amen.